0: Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy.
1: Thank you for joining us today for the Pharmacy Leadership Podcast. Our discussion for this podcast series focuses on leadership topics within pharmacy practice, including the business of pharmacy, development of leadership skills, career transitions, and more. My name is Daniel Pons. I'm a pharmacist at LMH Health in Lawrence, Kansas, and a part of the membership outreach advisory group within ASHP's New Practitioners Forum. I'll be your host for this pharmacy leadership podcast. With me today are three of our newest ASHP fellows inducted in summer of 2020. Dr. Kat Miller, PGY1 Program Director and Pharmacy Director for System Inpatient Clinical Services and Clinical Nutrition at the University of Kansas Health System. Dr. Nicole Aquisto, a clinical research pharmacist in the Department of Pharmacy, and Clinical Associate Professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Rochester Medical Center, and Dr. Joe Slechta, a Clinical Pharmacy Specialist for Cardiovascular Diseases at Wesley Medical Center. Thanks for joining us today, fellows. Let's dive right in uh, to today's topic, which will focus on the role of pharmacists as frontline healthcare providers and how we can help trainees step into that role after a year of virtual training in the midst of COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, The first question that we have today is what innovative ways have you seen pharmacists contribute to the healthcare system during the COVID-19 pandemic? Nicole, how about you? Go ahead and kick us off. Sure.
0: Um, I think you know it's hard to to talk about ways that pharmacists are involved during the pandemic without thinking about vaccine distribution and administration right now. Um, but thinking back really to the beginning of COVID, you know, I think that the pharmacy department um, definitely stepped up, and clinical pharmacists stepped up and were really involved with a lot of aspects um, with patients with COVID disease from everything from helping to organize uh, COVID studies that, that were starting very early on um, to being involved with developing in-hospital treatment protocols for, for COVID and for supportive management for patients with um, ARDS. Um, also, you know, thinking about like the ED setting, um, we obviously kind of changed the way we managed patients a little bit with um, with doing rapid sequence intubation and kind of how we changed being a little more aggressive with medications. Um, we also had to work on processes for determining how to um, alert people that they had positive COVID results. So we remember early on that the turnaround time was, was really long so we would have patients come into the emergency department, get discharged and just even coming up with processes on how to alert patients um, and pharmacists were really integrally involved with that. Um, I think now we're seeing um, still, you know, a lot of managing of, of COVID patients at the bedside, but also one area that some of our ICU pharmacists are getting involved with is taking care of um, patients that were ICU level of care and survived their ICU stay and are now being seen in our post-ICU care clinic as well. So definitely a lot of, um, you know, different ways that pharmacists were involved during the pandemic.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really cool and really interesting that there's pharmacists involved, both like on the acute inpatient, you know, front end of things, and also all throughout the process with the transitions of care and follow up and the AM care setting and everything. Um, That's really great. Um, Kat, I have a question for you. What practices do you think pharmacists will continue to lead after COVID?
2: I think that the pharmacists are going to continue to show that they are that we are a jack of all trades. Um, I think you've seen pharmacists involved everywhere from helping develop protocols, um, you know, making sure that we are Uh, following our guidelines and evidence-based medicine. I think something as specific as COVID, it's very easy to get caught up in what we think might be the latest and greatest practice and very shortly thereafter, realize the literature doesn't support it. So pharmacy has been really at the front end of um, reading that literature and making sure we're stopping practices that are no longer evidence-based. I think one of the challenges we've had here at our health system was uh, moving some of our pharmacists off-site. Um, simply just to make room for social distancing um, and and what activities could they perform um, not being on campus. And we've learned that there are some activities that can absolutely stay remote and there are some activities that absolutely cannot stay remote. And so it's really differentiating between some of those activities and finding the right place for our team members to be working So I think big picture, you know, we've seen a lot of pharmacy leadership, both from designing protocols, putting in new operations for testing, Um, you know, our, our retail partners, the pharmacists are doing some of that testing themselves. Um, You know, we've, as Nicole mentioned, pharmacists doing vaccinations. So we've really seen pharmacy involvement across the whole spectrum.
3: Yeah, I think like some other interesting things is you've just been in public education. I think even just when we're out out amongst the community and I have had, I'm sure everybody on this podcast and everyone that's listening has had family members or community members come and ask them about vaccinations and should I take it? What are the negatives? What are the positives? I, I think that that's probably an unsung hero move by, by a lot of the pharmacists that are out there. Um, another, another, I think, a real important place here that I think we'll continue to lead in is in public policy, too. If you look what ASHP has done over the last year and got all of their um, state organizations involved with trying to write policy that to help our legislators understand what pharmacists do, how we can help, how particularly in times of like this in COVID, where, where our value is. And I think that's something I hope we continue to build on also.
1: Yeah really all across the spectrum. I think the profession of pharmacy has just been putting in so much legwork to help our patients in so many different capacities. And as a new practitioner myself, I'm very grateful to be in such good company. Uh, Kind of along those same lines, Joe, what are some of the biggest challenges you've seen new practitioners at, at your institution facing as they start their pharmacy careers?
3: Yeah, and this year has been has been doubly, if not triply, difficult for for new practitioners and new residents. When you're, you know, when your first things you're trying to do is get to know people, and you're all you can see is this little slit of eyes and part of a nose and a forehead, and I think losing out on a lot of a lot of those other just natural body movements and and things that we learn from each other and knowing how people are responding to you or even you just portraying that I am actually smiling underneath this mask and I'm enjoying this conversation I'm having with you is difficult. So I think just that, um, you know, which I think we'll talk about more, which just the building relationships is such an important part of our jobs. And that becomes very difficult when you're, you're hidden in a mask all day. I think that's been difficult. I've I've noticed particularly, you know, people that that have known nurses, the other pharmacists, other physicians, and already built those relationships, it's a lot easier to continue um, underneath the mask because they know who you are. But if you're somebody stepping right into a brand new environment and they can't read that, this is a happy person most of the time, but I'm just seeing, this little little part of their face is difficult. So I I know that that's been a a struggle for a lot of new practitioners. And so trying to find ways to overcome that and doing more small talk and getting to know people um, I think has become even more important.
1: Yeah, so Joe and also Nicole, what are some ways that you recommend new practitioners to get to know their colleagues as they move into new, new institutions and new roles starting their careers?
3: Yeah. So I, 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 I think probably it's, it's just, you got to put the time in to get to know people and it's, I mean, you need to build the trust you need to build, um, you know, for just be a likable person to be around is, is almost half the battle sometimes. Um, and I think it's different with whichever different groups of, of people you're working with. I mean, I, I, when you go and start work with pharmacists, get to know some of the, the people that have been there for a long time, who've laid the foundation for where you're working. It's real easy to think that clinical pharmacy has been around and around, but I mean, the differences in the last five to 10 years are dramatic and um, get to know those, those pharmacists that may not even work in the area that you're at, but have laid the foundation at your institution for what you get, what you're able to do and the patient care practices that you currently have, and then give them appreciation for that foundation that they've built too. And then I think with with building relationships with the physicians and nurses, sometimes it just starts with doing little things, finding ways to help. And I know particularly during COVID, just simple things. Can I'm stuck here in this room. Can you sneak me a lab tube in here so I don't have to undress and go back out? And, and just some of those simple things of being a team player. Um, you know, I like to tell all my students and, and is I want you to get to know all the practitioners in here from the housekeeper to the physician to the cardiologist to everybody to the nurses, where they're not afraid to ask what they perceive to be the dumbest question that they have, because oftentimes those are the most important questions that we have to answer. So a lot of that's just built on if they're their comfort level with you. So um working to get to that point and and being humble about your approach, I think is real important. And I think another thing that maybe we don't think about too is that um and hopefully, as we have more meetings that are live in the future, too, is, is getting to know the, the leaders, leaders within your hospital system, the um, CNOs, the, everybody that's in the C-suite and things like that. Even as a new practitioner, it's, you know, if you're in a meeting with one of those people, just a simple introduction of, yeah, hey, I'm I'm Joe. Hey, I'm a new pharmacist here. I'm real excited to work here. I know we do a lot of cool things in the pharmacy and we're, you know, I've heard a lot of good things about you and supportive and just building those relationships because, the managers Kat, will attest that any of those little little discussions like that no matter how small will pay off.
0: And I would just add you know as we're kind of in a virtual world or half virtual world right now um you know just some kind of additional comments uh you know trying to be on if your position is is one that you know can be on-site or can be off-site trying to be on-site as much as possible. Um, I think with pharmacy departments in general now too just thinking about meeting all of your pharmacy colleagues themselves. Pharmacies really spread throughout a lot of institutions. So trying to you know, actively go to those different areas and, and meet people face to face can can definitely help as well. And then anytime, um, if you're on even it's a, if it's a virtual conference or a virtual journal club, you know, having your video on, participating, asking questions will help um, others get to know you and you get to know the presenters and, and other uh, pharmacy or, or non-pharmacy colleagues as well.
1: All great advice. Thank you guys both. Um, do you have any specific advice for effective online presentations kind of along that same vein?
0: Yeah, so I think you know, really trying to to make them as interactive as possible, which can be very difficult um, when you're, you know, sometimes speaking to uh, all different boxes of pictures, and and that's where you know the video is really nice when your when your colleagues turn on their videos uh, to hear you present, um, but trying to trying to kind of make it as interactive as possible so not just asking questions but maybe um, having more case discussions in your presentations or even using platforms like jeopardy or family feud to to kind of force the the interaction with the group um, can be fun ways to to try to make the presentations more effective um so you're just not really speaking to a a group of pictures but it's more of a more of a conversation and, and learning experience that way
1: as someone who um, has to lead meetings a lot, what tips do you have for new practitioners as they uh, have to facilitate online meetings?
2: Well, that has been a fun transition this year. Um, The first thing I would say is, as Nicole already alluded to, uh, cameras on. um, We had to fight this with our team a little bit for the first couple months of of moving over to video meetings. But honestly, video meetings have been so much more productive than conference calls. And so the number one thing you can do is turn your camera on and, you know, don't be afraid at the beginning of the meeting to ask everyone else to turn theirs on. Um, One of the really nice things video is that you don't have to have your makeup on, your hair can be slept in and you just pull it back and it it, it doesn't, you can't see or smell anybody. So, um, you know, that's a joke my boss has made. He's like, this isn't smell-o-vision, just turn your camera on, I just wanna see your face. Um, and one thing that, you know, those of you who are listening to this podcast right now, you're just getting to be able to listen to us, but the four of us speakers have our videos on and I hope you can probably hear that in the way that we're speaking, we're actually feeling like we're speaking to each other and not just at a video screen. So um, that's really uh, it helps engage the conversation. The next piece of advice I would say is um, ask for introductions Um, especially if you're a new practitioner and it's a new group don't be afraid to start the meeting and ask everyone to go around the room even if 50 or 80 percent of the room already knows each other um, you know it's your opportunity to introduce yourself and get to know um, put some more faces to names Um, our group has done um, we do a daily huddle and one of the things that we've started doing is keeping kind of the chat going behind the scenes of the huddle Um, after the video um, or after the meeting ends, and have kind of a theme for the day. So one day it was like, everybody show pictures of your pets. Everybody show pictures of your last vacation when we were all in a big vacation rut. Um, You know, or if it's a, um, and even in professional settings, you might have to gauge your audience at first, but I often have a picture of one of my last vacations up as my background behind my face to block out whatever else is behind me in the room. So that helps you get to know um, different people as well. The last thing I'll say if you are um, presenting something and not just facilitating a meeting is um, I've seen our residents this year get really caught up in typing out their words in their presentations and reading their presentations. And I think that's a couple steps backwards um, in the last couple of years um, of how technology has gotten so great that we have that capability, um, but it's really not helping us design and define our presentation style. So I think that it's really helpful if you're presenting on something, don't have every word spelled out, don't read from a script, really engage your audience, ask questions. If you have the videos on, you can really read those facial expressions and, and call people out if they look confused. Um, don't be afraid to say, it seems like you're not really understanding that, can, do you have a question for me? Or, oh, you agree with me, can you share your perspective? So um, that'll help your meeting be a little bit more engaging.
1: Those are really uh, helpful and creative tips. So thank you for that, for sure. For our listeners who aren't as familiar with what it even means to be an ASHP fellow, would you guys mind sharing just your journey to becoming an ASHP fellow and what kind of motivated you to put in all this time and effort to contribute back to the profession of pharmacy? Kat, you can start off and then Joe and Nicole, if you guys want to share as well, that'd be great.
2: Sure. That's a great question, Daniel. Um, I remember being a pharmacy student and seeing uh, my preceptors and mentors and RPDs have the designation of FASHP behind their name and thinking, that's pretty cool. What does that mean? Um, and, and learning a little bit more about, um, you know, you have to be contributing member of ASHP for at least 10 years and show that you have um, done work to enhance the practice of pharmacy, to enhance practice uh, residency growth or, or or, um, teaching opportunities and developing the profession that's coming after you um, are just a couple examples. For me, it just really can, kind of came naturally. Um, my residency leadership and um, in my first couple roles, um, the people that I worked for, it just it was kind of an assumption and an expectation that you were going to be involved, um, that you were going to do more in the practice of pharmacy outside of the four walls of our hospital. And so that really just became ingrained in me um, on day one of even being a student and a resident and has since then just become part of my practice. So I don't know that I did anything specific with the, the foresight of saying this is going to help me become a fellow in the future. Um, it really was just my dedication to making sure that you know I was given so much as a young pharmacist. What can I do to give back to the profession and make sure that um, the profession that's coming after me is going to be as successful and supported as I was.
3: Yeah, Kat, I'd, I'd kind of agree with you too. I don't, I don't know if I had, I had a, a journey that had a, the fellow being the little my little finish line to cross. But it, it just was kind of, a, like you say, kind of a natural progression of being interested in where our, what our profession, where our profession is going, how we're growing, how can I be a part of that, whether it be at the local level, um, you know, just being a, being a good clinical pharmacist at the local level and helping build uh, patient care to be the best it can be, to being involved with the, uh, your state pharmacist association, um, and then... You know, had the opportunity to serve on the Council on Pharmacy practice with ASHP and go up to Capitol Hill and discuss pharmacy issues with, with our senators and representatives and make them more knowledgeable about what pharmacists offer and what we can bring to the table as far as advancing the health care of our nation. Um, those are all just fun things. It was, you know, it was good to go out and talk about, talk about us as pharmacists, which we're not very good at anyway, right? We're usually pretty quiet and humble and we don't brag about ourselves too much, but that was kind of fun, and, and to get that interaction with with our uh, leaders of our nation, you're like that is pretty cool. I did not know pharmacists do that, or I do know my little pharmacist that lives out in western Kansas, and this is what they've done for me. And but as far as yeah, I was advancing to 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 the recognition of fellow is just kind of kind of like Kat said, really just kind of falls into what I was planning on doing with my career anyway. And at some point said, you know, I think you'd be you'd be eligible for this recognition and. And here we are.
0: And just to um, add to what Kat and Joe mentioned, Um, You know, I agree, I think it's a a natural progression um, and it is uh, definitely something where you wanna give back to the profession and get involved. And then kind of at some point while you're getting involved in things, you realize that this could be a potential um, endpoint as as fellowship or not endpoint, but a potential recognition uh, to achieve because the expectation is not that that it ends once you receive your fellowship to a society. Um, but i but I think especially from a new practitioner perspective, I think when you start um it's easy to not easy, but e your short-term goals are a little bit easier to define than your long-term goals. So I think most people, um, you know, had getting board certification is an, an early goal. Um, maybe getting involved in a society is a, is, an, is another short-term goal. And these are, you know, one to three to five-year goals. But I think coming up with longer-term goals is much more difficult. And what also happens from a new practitioner perspective is you say yes to a lot of things um, because that's how you get involved. That's how you build relationships. Um, and, and eventually you get to a point in your career where you're saying yes to a lot, and and where's the direction of your yeses, and I think um, fellowship of a society like ASHP can can very much help guide um, your yeses and can give you that long-term goal. So, um, ASHP has a. Um, uh, a description of, of what a fellow of the society has to do to achieve a fellowship status and and kind of at some point in your career early on looking at what those requirements are and then thinking you know if this could potentially be a long-term goal how do you get there um and and sometimes the description can be overwhelming um because it's meant to be a 10-year goal a 15-year goal but i think you know using fellowship um to help guide your long-term goals can be, can be a great thing too.
1: The direction of your yeses is a good thing to consider. I really like the way that you put that Nicole and I'm very glad that you all's journeys haven't ended with fellow status and that you're still helping us a lot and contributing a lot to the profession of pharmacy. Now that everyone knows that you've been in practice for at least 10 years, um, would you guys share some of the newer um, roles and responsibilities that you've seen pharmacists take on that maybe you wish you would have known about when you had started out? We kind of go maybe in reverse order and Nicole and then Joe and Kat.
0: Sure. I can start. Um, I mean, thinking back, I mean, these 10 years have really been uh, ripe for change. When I started, uh, we were still on paper orders and, you know, we had multiple um, electronic systems to kind of that came together as some sort of electronic record. So even just with technology, it's really amazing what's changed. Um, but in in my practice specifically um, in emergency medicine, uh, when I started um, 15-ish years ago, there was a very small um, amount of pharmacists nationally that were practicing in that area um, and to to watch um, that change rapidly over those years. Um, to now, where you know, even when I did my residency training, it was only one of two residencies in the country for emergency medicine, and now there's um, almost 80 emergency medicine residency programs, um, and I it's been I've been lucky um, to to be a, a part of that. So even so, just from the clinical role, there's definitely huge expansion. Um, You know, I think that other areas that we've really seen expand um, are the ambulatory areas and and CMM practices um, is definitely kind of the the next hot area, Um, and it's continually in evolving, um, what pharmacists are involved with, and the type of recognition that pharmacists are getting within their institutions and with their colleagues. I know at our institution, um, no matter what the service is, they want a pharmacist involved with, you know, really any guideline decision, any research study, um, anything like that. So it's been really neat to see um, how pharmacists have really kind of Planted their role on these interdisciplinary teams, and it's not just a luxury to have a pharmacist anymore; it's a necessity to have a pharmacist.
3: Yeah, I agree with this. I was going to say, emergency medicine is, I think, one of the most fun things to watch expand. And and once you once you put a pharmacist in the ED, good luck with your ED docs uh, letting you stop that that service because it's it's incredible. Um, To be there, big things are just where oncology is going. People, I mean, oncology pharmacists, God bless you for understanding what every single one of those maps does, because I don't. Um, And um, just looking at I think pharmacogenetics is going to be ridiculously crazy um, in the future, and also a ton of smart people involved in that. I think the next things really are how do you get 24-7 clinical services in every single hospital in the entire country. And I think there's going to be some neat remote things probably in the future that will be able to handle some of that for even our critical access hospitals, which could severely use those those services. But, um, um, yeah, it's been fun. I've been old enough to be a fellow twice. I'm old enough to be a fellow twice. So I've seen a lot of, a lot of cool things happen, and it's, it's just going to keep going at rocket speed.
2: Joe, you probably deserve two fellows for for all the work that you've done also. (laughs) Um, I think what I'll add in is, you know, for me, it's just been fun seeing um, practice at a couple different organizations and um, realizing that what works in one organization isn't going to work in every organization. Um, Your patient populations may be a little bit different. um, Your physician model may be a little bit different. And it's cool to see how pharmacy adapts to whatever their needs are in that site. you know, the other thing that has been fun is to see some of the technology or thing, um, new opportunities come out that we try and then we're like, eh, yeah, yep, you know what? Uh, my pharmacist can actually do it better than that technology. Thanks for trying. We're gonna go back to doing it the way we were. Um, so it's it's just fun to see the, the things that we're willing to try and see what we can do to better take care of our patients and then kind of circle back around and say, you know what, nothing's actually gonna be better to take care of this patient than a good old pharmacist and their clinical knowledge and their critical thinking skills. So um, I think that's the number one thing that I hope every um, pharmacist graduate will walk away with um, because no matter how much technology or support there is for you, it's still gonna come back to you and having those skills that you are in school for today.
1: Thank you guys for all that great input. As we land this plane, uh, what parting advice do you have for new practitioners either graduating this spring or beginning residency or even entering the workforce after finishing their residency? Um, We'd love to hear just kind of your parting shots. So Kat, we can start with you and then Joe and Nicole, you can chime in as well.
2: Sure, I have two so hopefully I don't steal one from either of you Joe or Nicole. Um, The first one that I'll throw out there is a piece of advice that I got as a resident that I continue to give residents and peers and even myself sometimes um, is that if you are comfortable you are not learning. And so, um, yes, it is a little uncomfortable to step out of what you know and try something new but that is the only way that we get better um, individually and better as a profession so if you are comfortable you are not learning. The second one that I'll say is, networking is really important. Um, Getting to know, pharmacy is a really, really small world and um, probably smaller than we think it is. And I know that I came out of uh, pharmacy school being very afraid of what networking was and what it meant. Um, Getting involved in different organizations just as a natural progression to create networking opportunities. But the reason I think it's so important is every single career move I've made has been because of a connection that I've had, not me searching for a different role. And so I think it's really important to to have people out there who know who you are and know um, how you might be better uh, suited for a different role in a different organization or a leadership role in a professional organization. And by continuing to grow that network, um, you're going to create new opportunities for yourself and then pay that forward and create that network for those who come after
1: you.
3: Have to follow catch. You always does such good things. Um, I I think once again, like I mentioned, like I touched on before, building relationships, building trust, get started on that day one. Another day one thing is to figure out how you're going to stay organized early. I I sometimes joke I wish that actually my computer would just die, so all my email goes away and my office would catch on fire and I lose all my papers. I can start from zero again because I've I've got a few of those laying around here. But stay organized early, figure out what that what that's going to be, and work for you because things will pile up, and my inbox is is a testament to that. Um, also, don't be afraid to get involved in your state organizations. That's not as difficult as you probably think it is as a, as a young pup coming out. There's lots of opportunities to on different committees, and that's a, also if you're if you're thinking about you know how do I get myself to the goal where I want to be, maybe be a fellow. Um, that's a great place to start and figure out if that's even the route you want to go. Um, my last thing probably is just something that I know at the end of every residence year, we have a picture for all the residents that we've got a little border around the outsider photo that we all write, write things on. And I, I write up just about the, the same thing on, on every one of them. And I think it's something that I try to think about when I go to work every day and how I'm gonna approach the day, but just to you know do your best to do good work with knowledge, Compassion, patience, and and humility, and I think if you just start that day every day, and if you can get in your vehicle on the way home and say I accomplished that, then you know it's been a successful day.
0: That is great advice. Um, I'm going to try to curtail a little bit on, on on what you said as well, but you know I do think networking, as Kat mentioned, is um, is key. I, I was someone who in pharmacy school too. I didn't really kind of understand the importance of networking, and it really didn't become something that was so important to me um, until residency training and after. And getting involved, um, just to add to what Joe said, getting involved in state organizations, national organizations, different committees and subcommittees um, is really the way to be able to meet people and to learn, you know, just work with different people that you wouldn't normally work with and then gain opportunities that way. Um, so I think that is that is definitely something early on to to get involved with. I would also add, you know, in building relationships with colleagues and providers, you will say yes a lot. And and that's good. (laughs) That is good. But, but also, you know, think about what are your, you know, what are the three things that you want to get done this, the six months, you know, what are the next three big things to work on the following six months, I think it's really easy as um, new practitioners to really jump into some practice settings and, and recognize that there's, a million things that need to get done, you know, what are some potential, what are some potential, you know, high fee or low feasibility, but high impact things that you could get done, you know, kind of the low hanging fruit to get a couple of quick wins. And then what are your projects or, or or types of things to optimize that might take a little bit longer and kind of really hone in on to these are the three that I want to try to accomplish over the next six months or a year, because I think it can get um, very overwhelming. As Joe mentioned, you know, everyone, it would be great if if we could all start at a clean slate at some point, uh, because it does compound. So trying to, um, you know, you want to hit the ground running, um, but just be careful how hard you're hitting the ground running just to make sure that you have the endurance um, because I do feel like pharmacy as I've always said this to my residents you know it's an endurance sport uh, especially working with medical colleagues too you know it's really an endurance sport so so you want to hit the ground running but controlled so that that's just some additional advice um, in addition to Kat and Joe.
1: All such helpful wisdom thank you thank you. I started a new position recently and just realized I'd already said yes to like four different things. And I was like, oh, better say no to the next thing. (laughs) Better calm it down a little bit unfortunately that is all the time that we have today thank you so much kat nicole and joe for joining us to discuss the role of pharmacists as frontline healthcare providers and offer your wisdom to new practitioners for our listeners you can find more member exclusive content including resources for self-development leading pharmacy enterprises and teams and practice management on the ashp website thank you for joining us and be sure to subscribe to the ashp official podcast